Hey, this is Dewey from Pure Pleasure on Jabberjaw Media. I wanted to tell you guys about the Patreon for the show. It's called the Pleasure Seekers Club, and there's two levels. There's the $5 level and the $10 level. And all this is, guys, is to help support the show, help support the cost of putting the show out, um, you know, time spent uh, building the show, hosting costs, travel costs to do the in-person interviews that you guys like so much. Um, it all costs money. And I always try to find the best deal for sure uh, because I do have a day job as well. But having that support on the Patreon is definitely going to help bring more in-person interviews, more travel, more uh, updated uh, graphics, hosting, websites, all that stuff. So, um, And if you like the show, $5 a month or $10 a month really helps out. I know it's kind of uh, an interesting thing with the Patreon when something's already free. Uh, but it is always going to be free. But if you want to support the show a little bit more, I'd absolutely appreciate it. Uh, you can pay either $5 or $10 a month. We'll try to do some special things for the patrons as well as we go. Um, but it's just a way to support the show in a different way. And uh, like I said, I really appreciate you guys coming back week after week. That's the most important thing I can ask for. So definitely go over and check out the Patreon. It's patreon.com slash Podcast. Once again, that is patreon.com slash Podcast. Sign up today and join the community and help out the show. Keep it growing. And I thank you so much. Hey, this is Blasco, host of Manage Mental, part of the Jabberjaw Media Podcast Network. Manage Mental brings you our takes on the modern day music business and how we mentally approach the profession of management. Join Mike Mowry and myself as we cover hot topics in the industry, answer fan questions, provide insight on sales numbers, and showcase new music with a slant toward developing artists. Listen and subscribe at jabberjawmedia.com. This is the Jabberjaw Podcast Network. Visit JabberjawMedia.com for more shows like this one. to another week of Beer Pleasure with Dewey Halpus. My name is Dewey, your host with the most, bringing you great content. We've got a huge guest this week, Mr. Larry Livermore from Lookout Records, the band The Lookouts. Uh, Larry is the the mastermind behind Lookout Records. Gilman Street Project was a big deal uh, that he was working with back in the day, setting up a free space for artistic types, punk rockers, everybody, and uh, you know, fostering a great culture down there in the East Bay. Uh, and was also responsible for a lot of huge bands, which you all probably listen to today, such as Operation Ivy, uh, Green Day, Crimp Shrine, all these fantastic lookout bands. Uh, they really meant a lot to us growing up. Now, being up in Alaska without the internet at the time, we had a little bit of the internet, I guess, but it was still very archaic. All the websites were super slow. 
and uh, we had to basically do mail order. Um, and that was our first experience with mail order was Lookout Records getting that catalog when you ordered a CD. Um, they would send you the Lookout Records catalog, and you'd be able to look through that and, and kind of pick out what looked cool because you didn't, weren't always able to listen to samples of what you were buying. So that was a huge deal for us, getting into independent music and then going to record stores and finding other records that looked awesome, you know, just looking at the covers primarily until we really got our feet wet. Um, and Lookout Records was a lot of popular bands. It wasn't as hard uh, as a lot of the hardcore punk rock. So it was easy for us to ease our way into independent music. Um, that was that was always something that was hard for me, uh, getting into new styles of music. Like the, you know, I was in a few screaming bands, uh, but before that, I hated it. I hated screaming. I hated, uh, didn't understand it. I didn't understand it at all. And it just sounded like a mess. I remember I bought the Jane Doe record um, by Converge, thinking it was going to be awesome. And I put it in and I could listen to barely the first two songs, which are actually combined together. And I ended up giving it to last week's guest, Zach Carruthers, thinking, I'm never going to listen to this again. I don't understand this at all. And then I discovered Poison the Well. And Poison the Well, for some reason, that Tear from the Red record, I put it on. I think my ex-girlfriend and I were fighting. And I just put it on my alarm clock CD player. And some reason, it just lit me up inside. And I all of a sudden got it. Um, and then I ended up buying that Jane Doe record again. And it became one of my favorite albums. And to this day, I still find myself explaining the screaming thing to uh, people that don't understand it and, and how it changed my whole world, um, you know, getting stuff, the stuff that's inside out and, you know, just pure aggression, pitching screams, things like that. But that's neither here nor there. So that's, um, you know, what I got into afterwards. But Lookout Records was pivotal in uh, Nick and Joe and I from Anatomy of a Ghost starting our first pop punk band up in Alaska. Uh, and Larry was the man behind that. So talking to him was basically talking to one of my heroes. And that's why I love this show is I, could, I get to talk to these people and ask them the questions I want to ask. I don't have to go search it out and, and try to find someone else with the same ideas. I get to ask exactly what I want to ask. And uh, it usually goes, you know, pretty well. Um, you know, I, of course, you know, sometimes you ask a question and the person, you know, either doesn't get it or is like, man, I've been asked that a million times. But maybe you just didn't find the answer you were looking for. So anyways, this is a long episode. So if you're listening on Adobe Radio, you're going to hear the first hour of this. We did about an hour and a half, uh, Larry and I, uh, over Skype. He was in New York, just got back from Asia and uh, doing a lot of things over there, working on book three. Uh, he's also the author of Spy Rock Memories, uh, which is about, um, you know, kind of the beginnings of Lookout Records uh, and then how to run or ruin a record label, uh, which is the book I got first. That's book two, and that's the one that just came out a little while ago on uh, Don Giovanni Records, and it's a great one. So uh, definitely check those books out. Uh, I'm gonna st- I'm gonna shut up here and get into the interview because it's a long one, and I, I think you guys are gonna really enjoy it. Uh, Larry's super insightful. So uh, we are on PurePleasurePodcast.com. We are on Instagram and Twitter. Definitely go to iTunes, subscribe, and rate the episode uh, or rate the show. Give us a five star rating if you're into it. If not, uh, you know, just be honest. So, uh, also our Amazon affiliate link is also up on the website. So definitely go there, bookmark that link and you know, everything you buy on Amazon gives us 4% and that really helps out, keep the lights on and everything else. So, uh, without further ado, let's get into my conversation with Mr. Larry Livermore from Lookout Records.
doing all right. How about yourself? Oh, I'm doing well. Thanks, man. Thanks for coming on the show. Okay, it's a pleasure. <laughs> I'm, 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 I, I actually really enjoy these opportunities to talk with people and answer questions or shoot my mouth off about my many opinions about many things. Awesome. Well, that's what the show's all about, man. I was really excited when you agreed to come on and, and, uh, I mean, your work has had a lot of impact on my life. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm 35 and as a fairly younger person, um, you know, my formative years were spent a lot of time, um, you know, with music and, and discovering new music and the stuff you were putting out, uh, you know, really shaped who I became and as a musician and, and actually, you know, in turn got me into music. So, you know, that's, if someone asked me that question, uh, which of course I want to ask you the same thing, but if they asked me that question, I could, you know, throw your name in there as, is getting me out there into, into music and becoming a guitar player. And, and, uh, so I always do worry, uh, when people tell me that I've been a influence on their life because my my very next thing i start to think about well well how is your life uh is it um uh is it okay it is it is you actually i mean uh just to well i'll put it out there first thing just because i mean and i want to talk about you but um i grew up in alaska um you know in in uh you know 80s and 90s and for me without the internet uh you know in the beginning of course you know, music was kind of scarce as whatever my dad had laying around and everything else. And, and, uh, he had a little radio show on a, we grew up on a little Island called Petersburg. And once I moved up to the mainland and started hanging out with some friends from middle school, um, they brought over the first couple, you know, uh, green day releases. And I was listening to it and it immediately caught my attention and then we started to think ourselves, we could play this music. We could do this. So we would actually sit around and learn Green Day songs um, for the first you know, year or so, um, just trying to see who could play them better than each other. And, and uh, you know, I'm talking pre-Dookie. And that was what really got us started playing, was learning Green Day songs. And then we discovered Mail Order and Lookout Records. And we would basically sit down with the catalog and we'd each pick, we didn't have much money, so each of my friends would pick out a record or two or a t-shirt or two, and we'd order that, and we'd pass that stuff around back and forth, and that's really how we got our eyes open to independent music, and then started trying to seek it out at record stores in Alaska, and and uh, so that sense has turned into, um, you know, my, my band with my buddies, Anatomy of a Ghost, uh, we were on Fearless Records and Rise Records. Did a lot of touring, and then we, uh, when we broke up, some of the other guys started a band called Portugal, the man you may have heard of. All these bands were influenced by the releases on Lookout Records. And so life has been great. I mean, um, I feel like I have a pretty good grasp on, on music, and, and the importance it had to me was, was a huge deal. So it was a good thing <laughs> that you had that influence and were putting out those that. releases. That sounds good. It puts me in mind, however, of a story that ha- happened this, this past year. Uh, Alaska actually happens to be the only one of the 50 states that I have not yet visited, and I'm looking forward to getting up there one day. Uh, but there's um, we were there was an event at Gilman last year, and um, this, this fellow who's a bit older than you. Um, and, and who grew up up north too, but I think in uh, in the Canadian Yukon. 
And so he had a similar experience, you know, no internet, obviously. And basically he, he said, I've been following your story and the story of Gilman and the East Bay ever since it began, but just by subscribing to Maximum Rock and Roll and other fanzines and by, and mail ordering the records. And now I'm 50 years old and I finally made it down to, to Berkeley and got to come to Gilman for, for the first time. And this is like, you know, something I dreamed of for most the majority of my life. And I brought my, my, my son with me and he had a, a, a young kid with him. And it was like, the kid was just like wide eyed looking all around, just a, a really little kid, you know? And the thing was, uh, this particular night, um, Billy Joe Armstrong from Green Day and and I were hanging out at the back because Billy Billy has two young sons who also play in bands now and they were playing a show at Gilman. Mm-hmm. So it was a total next generation kind of thing. And uh but this little kid that that this 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 uh fifty year old man was like introducing me to and I, I just couldn't get over how the kid was just amazed that like, such a place existed and, you know, coming from probably a very quiet background and i just like thought i don't know i asked the kid how old are you he says 11 and i said well welcome to your club we built this place for for you and it just popped out of my my mouth i don't know why i said it but uh afterwards i said to billy yeah i guess that was really true we didn't know it we thought we were just building a place to hang out and have fun and start bands and goof off and stuff where where other people wouldn't bother us and and here it is all these years later and second and even third generation you know there's even grandparents now our grandchildren now of the people who started that and it has it has gone on down through through the years i just come back um uh, a couple of weeks ago from the uh, 30th anniversary celebrations at, at gilman mm-hmm. and and where I think you may, I don't know if you heard about it, but they got somehow managed to convince a lot of the old uh, original Lookout bands to reunite to, to play a show for the first time in 20 or more years. I did. And so it was kind of like a family reunion. And, and it was really brought, I mean, brought home. They were like, like I had, I had a table set up where I was selling my books and records. And um, his, mo- his mom came by and, and set down this baby almost you know not much more than newborn <laughs> and uh on the table and, and at first i was like hmm setting it down on top of my merch huh and then <laughs> and then like all around there's like these little kids and then there's like 70 and 75 year olds and everything in between you know it was very wholesome not not like kind of what we once thought of punk back in the 70s and early 80s where it all everything had to be all nihilistic and skulls and festering corpses and angry and mm-hmm. we hate reagan and stuff it, it was um just you know it was i hate to say it you know kind of like the uh what the good side of the american dream where just a community gets together and does something and and builds something that that goes that that lasts absolutely i i absolutely agree and that's I've been to Gilman one time, and and we never actually got to play there. We always played somewhere else in that area. I don't know why, but you know, always hearing about those shows and everything else. Uh, you know, for us up there, just hearing about Gilman and and seeing, you know, once the internet did come out, like looking at pictures and and uh, you know trying to find videos of shows and just uh, trying to basically mimic 
Um, some of the venues up in Alaska, we we had, I mean, we would rent like a rec center and things like that. And and looking at the the way Gilman self policed itself, and you know, um, I, I think it was Tim Armstrong uh, or Lint, as he was known back then, would would sweep up the place afterwards, and 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 just hearing stories like that really helped us take part in our own scenes and kind of inspired us to say, Hey, you know, let's take care of this place instead of, Hey, let's wreck this place for two hours and then bail. You know, that, that sense of community really carried across, you know, I think there was a real, a a real shift took place around that time. And I don't know how much credit Gilman can take for it, or it was just something in the zeitgeist in the, uh, but you're, you, you put your finger on something that's, was really poignant in the, in the, throughout the eighties. And, uh, I mean, you could never keep a punk venue open for more than a, a, a few weeks or months usually because people literally would wreck the place just ha ha. Cause it's punk. They could pull the toilets out of the, out of the walls or mm-hmm. put, put cherry bombs in them or, you know, smash things up or, um, even if it wasn't their place. It, and, and, you know, so basically they, if the, police didn't shut it down the uh, owners would and uh, and nobody really even questioned that it was it was that whole sex pistol there's no future you know we just sort of revel in the end and then somehow um there was this dividing line at uh i think it was around the time of gilman where a, a new younger more upbeat positive crowd said you know we would really like to have a place where we can have shows all the time and the you know, where we can feel safe and, and constructive. And, and that seems to have become a model that has spread all over the place. I mean, I've, I travel quite a lot and all over the country and all over other countries. You know, that is more and more what people think of as punk today rather than, the, you know, the sort of the polar opposite. I don't know, right, right before Gilman opened, there was a one of the last venues that was still working in that was still possible for bands to play um, that wasn't a corporate club. This was 1986 was a place called new method, which was sort of a half squad, half commune uh, used to be a, an old laundry building in the kind of the warehouse district. And they, I remember them having big arguments because they kept having trouble with the cops and uh, there was a lot of, big drug problem, hard drugs. And, and I, I remember attending a meeting there in 1986 where they were arguing about whether to let certain bands play there. Cause they said, every time they come, there's trouble and everything gets smashed up. And, uh, and other people said, but we have to let them play cause they're punk. And I was like, well, I don't know. They, they're not even that punk, but you know, I got outvoted and nobody really paid that much attention to me because I was kind of new around the scene then. But mm-hmm. they invited, actually, I might as well say the name. The band was uh, Corrosion of Conformity or COC, as okay. we're often known. Yep. And I thought I thought they were just like basically a, more of a metal band, but, you know, they had a lot of fans. And people said, no, we got to let them play. And so they did. I didn't. I didn't go to the show, and I'm just glad I didn't because like hundreds of people showed up. The place got smashed. The police showed up, and you know that was the end. And that was a very typical story. And but it was that same uh, spring in 1986 where a few of the people from New Method that were sick of this kind of stuff uh, 
said, let's let's find a place where we can put on our shows where this doesn't happen. And they, they got this old pizza parlor uh, in South Berkeley, sort of off the beaten track where almost nobody went. It was on the verge of going out of business. And, and we put on a show. My band got to play in the Bay Area for the first time at that show. And the Mr. T Experience, who were a pretty new band then, and, and several others, um, No Means No from Canada and Victim's Family. It was a totally different thing it, it was just like happy nobody got in a fight nobody overdosed nobody broke anything and at the end we were just sort of, sort of glowing in the excitement and warmth of it all and one of the guys named victor from uh, new method said we got to find a place where we can put on shows like this all the time and and i and other bunch of other people pitched said yeah we do let's get and that was really that was uh, May 29, nineteen eighty six, and that was the beginning of the of the Gilman Street project. Like one of uh, a, a young woman named Kamala was in that group, and she didn't just talk; she went out immediately and found and started looking and found a warehouse, which became Gilman. It took us the rest of the year to build it and open it up. But you know, you know that that old uh, there's this, there's this concept called free spaces it's a it's actually a sociological concept i remember reading about in college whereas if you create uh, an environment that's enough removed from the mainstream society where people of marginalized groups um can gather without interference that they'll uh they'll, they'll create new things new uh, new things new cultures new ideas um it's kind of the, the academic, uh, scientific version of a, if you build it, they will come, you know, from that movie, mm-hmm. uh, The Field of Dreams. Um, and, you know, the, the, the book, it refers to, um, say, when um, African-Americans had no place that they could gather in safety except for church on Sunday. Mm-hmm. So the church became the, the place where they, the civil rights movement was born. And similarly, the women's movement it ironically uh, developed in the women's temperance movement because that was the only place that women back in the 19th century and early 20th century could get together with each other without men butting in and telling them what to do or what to think. And so that's kind of what, what Gilman became. I mean, there was not a whole lot of stuff going on in the, in those days in the East Bay. It was, and like, as I say, there almost all of the places to, for bands to play and people to hang out were either closed or under threat. Mm-hmm. And suddenly there was this place where a bunch of very energetic and very bright kids could, could hang out and nobody was going to tell them, hey, your band is stupid, so you can't play here or you're not cool enough because you got it. that kind of thing. In fact, the the weirder and funnier you were, the more quickly you'd be accepted and welcomed. And it just, I don't know, it was just one of those things. It just, everything just shifted. The uh, the old school destroy everything kind of punks uh, hated it, but you know they kind of knew their time was past. They didn't. That was not their scene. Yeah, once they realized there there is a future, <laughs> that there's not no future. That oh yeah, you know, life goes good. on. You become a father, right. you become a husband, and you're still you know you can't you can't act that way. And it's it's kind of like starting a garden or something. It seems like what you're saying is, is I mean, you give some place uh, for someone to, to feel safe enough to speak up and bring out the ideas they're already thinking, um, you know, cultivates that, that space. And that's a, that's a cool idea. I mean, it's lasted a long time 
and it had you know far-reaching implications to other uh, and uh, to other 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 countries, other states. I mean, and the fact that it's still going is awesome. And one of the one I, I remember reading a while back uh, is one wasn't one of the restrictions about like major label bands playing at Gilman. Uh, I think it came up because uh, Billy Joe was in Pinhead Gunpowder and Green Day at the same time, but Green Day was going on to bigger things with major labels that Pinhead Gunpowder could play there, but Green Day could not. Is that was that correct? Well, that that is the the general principle and it's like all principles I, I honestly i just had this argument with a very dear friend the other other day because it's actually about politics where he wouldn't vote for the only candidate that could uh, beat uh, mr trump because it's principles and and i kind of got you know principles are not something that exists in a vacuum <laughs> they are mm-hmm. They're a means to an end. You have a, a principle of taking a certain action, not because you know you're going to get a gold star or a, or a halo. You do it because this principle produces the kind of result that you would, or the kind of world that you would like to live in. Mm-hmm. And this, the, the, the anti-major label thing at Gilman is a principle which was originally promulgated by Maximum Rock and Roll, the the magazine that put a lot of its uh, money and effort into starting Gilman. Um, but like all principles, you can debate it endlessly. Like you could take each word of the sentence apart and say, well, what does that mean? And what does it mean in relation to the other words? So needless to say, over the 30 years, there have been many debates about whether somebody is really on a major label. For instance, if they're an, an indie label who's been distributed or taken, partly taken over by a major label, uh, if one or more members of the band is in a major label, you know, and that's, that's kind of the pen and gunpowder thing where Billy is a member and is on a major label. Um, and so there's the general principle is that you can't be on a major label and play there. However, there have been, there have been some, not a lot, but a few exceptions made, for example, about a year or two ago, um, Green Day offered to play there as a, a benefit for a, an artist uh, collective that stuff suffered a great fire and a lot of people were left homeless. And mm-hmm. um, and the um, Gilman voted to allow them to play that one time, as even though they're on a major label. And it was a very successful event, raised a lot of money, and it was a lot of fun. But there are still people that are extremely angry about it. Mm-hmm. Um, um but as a general rule, you know, the, the thinking behind it is people who are bands, performers on major labels have many options and many places to play. And, um, you know, independent uh, grassroots kind of, of artists do not. You know, however, you know, times have changed a little bit, maybe a lot since, since those days, too. The, the, the lines keep getting blurred. You know, nowadays being on a major label doesn't necessarily mean much at all in terms of. It used to be like if you got signed to a major label, everybody would say, "Oh, you made it! You're a big success." And nowadays, it it sometimes means less than zero. I mean, there are bands on on independent labels that are probably making more money than than some on on major labels. I would definitely so, agree with that. Um, and you know, the whole. I mean, it's. 
being from a somewhat older generation, because I had already gone through a whole different counterculture before I got involved with punk, I, I, I maybe have a little bit more of a historical perspective. And in fact, it was funny when you said, you know, what do you do when you realize that there's going to be a future after all? Because I had kind of been through that in the late 60s when I kind of just gave up on everything, you know, didn't didn't work, didn't go to school, uh, didn't have a house. Uh, basically, I, I was operating as, on the assumption that this would be 1968. I was operating under the assumption that within the next couple of years, either there was going to be a full-fledged revolution and overthrowing of the government or society was just going to collapse and that therefore there was no point in, you know, preparing for the future because I would be just doing this great new thing. And, uh, I mean, my life was an absolute wreck and somewhere it was actually late 68 and I was hitchhiking across the country and, and I realized that for the last couple of years I had lived in this really artificial environment, mostly in Berkeley or Ann Arbor where everybody was like radical hippie anarchist revolutionary type type people. Mm -hmm. And so it was easy in that environment to believe that the whole country was, you know, up in arms and ready to just, you know, come apart. And here I was out in Nebraska and, um, I remember we, we went into, we were, we went into the bus station there to watch the Beatles come on television for the last time to introduce their new single, which was Hey Jude. And suddenly I, I was watching, I said, for one thing, I said, man, this song isn't even that good. I don't know. It's the first time I was not excited by the Beatles. Uh, cause we, we used to see them as like oracles back then as, you know, from visitors from higher realms that tell us what was going to happen and <laughs> what was, and suddenly it's just, it's just an ordinary band. And like, and this is in Nebraska is just like an ordinary place. And like, we've been traveling for days across all mid America and, there's no revolution. Everybody is just like going on with their lives and going to work and going to school and living in houses. And, um, and it was like in that moment, it started to occur me, like occur to me, like that's what, um, what it means. Like there's no, uh, I was like, I had thrown away everything based on this imagination that there was no future. And suddenly I was like, Oh yeah, there is a future and I'm not in it. Uh So, um, but I wanted to pivot off of that onto another aspect because we were talking about major labels and yeah. and, and what um, how bands operate and how well they do. And there's a lot of whining and moaning about how the record industry has been destroyed and you can't really make a living off of it anyway. And because I'm older, I'm I I do actually it, it occurred to me that this whole thing of where a band could put out a record and actually make a living from it. It's a very, a fairly brief phenomenon. Um, up until the late 1960s, bands usually didn't put out albums. And if they did, they would just be like the single plus a bunch of filler Mm -hmm. or once in a while, a collection of several singles. Um, it was only like the, the hippie acid rock bands that really pioneered that idea of like, concept albums or where everything on it was important and relevant to the theme and it was at that time when people started selling lots of records and making lots of money from music and that lasted for about 40 years till till the end of the century and at which point then new media like the 
internet and uh, a number of other factors meant that suddenly it was no longer an easy way to make money. In fact, it, unless you're a big star, it's a very difficult way to make money. Mm-hmm. And so pe- people, people are still ruining the fact that they missed out on their chance or that they can't do what they were doing for, for 20 or 30 years and keep making money that way. But kind of a bubble, a brief bubble for most of history. Performers and artists have made their living in different ways and not just by printing lots of copies of their music and and selling them. You know, they've had to go around and perform. They've had to come up with other innovative ways of of both getting their message or their music heard and and making a living. And that's kind of what we're getting back to, I, as far as I can see. I'm I'm not sure there will ever be another gold rush of the sort that there was from the 70s through the in, end of the century, where basically anybody that could put out a half-decent record could make some money out of it. Um, and in, in a way that probably as exciting as that period was, it, it probably did a lot of damage to to the artistic community. Uh, not not that artists shouldn't be able to make a, make a living and, and make decent money for their work, but it kind of twists everything out of proportion when you're seeing all these examples of people making like a lot of money really fast. Mm-hmm. And in that kind of people stops people. There's a tendency, a temptation to stop, stop thinking about how can I make my music better? How can I really express myself? To, and then replacing that with, how can I make myself sound more like Green Day or The Offspring or whoever it was that got the last multi-million seller? Because mm-hmm. I, I, I watched that happen in my capacity at, at Lookout uh, starting in the mid-90s. Uh, you know, it, it used to be, I've, we've got this great, exciting new band. It doesn't sound like anything else. you you got to hear it. It's like people really... Will love this. Uh, that's what I would hear in the early days, and then by the mid '90s, it was like, "You got to hear this new band. They sound like just like Green Day, maybe even better." That's and and th- this bubble that you're talking about too is really it's a fascinating concept because it seems to happen with a lot of things, whether it's you know the housing market or music or or film. I mean. I don't know. It, I've, I was talking to a buddy the other day about this with with like Led Zeppelin, how, you know, the true, you know, you think of a rock star, you think and you see all these movies like Almost Famous and stuff like that, where, you know, they check into a hotel under a different name and they're, you know, yelling from the balconies and and doing whatever that they still want. happens, by the way, it, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> they, still, they still check into under fake, under fake names. Sorry. But the uh, the the <laughs> rock star, I don't think can exist anymore because there's just too much access. There's no mi- mystery anymore. There's no, uh, you know, you can get on Twitter and see what so and so's doing and they're walking their dog or whatever else. It's not like you go into a club or an arena and that person walks out and it's just this this feeling again. Because you know what they had for breakfast the, the the day before, or you know what I mean. Where I think everything's kind of coming around, where that bubble's shrinking, and I don't know if it's going to fill up again. And it's, it's well, I would I would I would question partially your assumption there because mm-hmm. 
what you're you're talking about rock stars, but then you talk about somebody like, for instance, Lady Gaga or Madonna or Beyonce or any number of performers like that, uh, they still have a mystique and they can still walk into a stadium and have everybody go absolutely mental. Um, where, uh, where I would contrast that with, well, you know, the, the rock stars I know most closely, obviously are green day and they, it's, it's almost like they consciously avoid that mystique. Um, they, now I've, I've, walked into a stadium with them and watched, you know, from the backstage area, the, you know, so basically I'm seeing it from how it would feel to them and having to see 50,000 people go absolutely mental. Mm-hmm. And it is pretty, pretty powerful and intense. But at the same time, you know, the members of the band, when, when it's not showtime, they will just go around the neighborhood where they live or uh, after their show or before the show, they'll, come out and talk to the fans uh, you know, and the old fashioned stars would not even dream of doing that. They would mm-hmm. never be seen except in full costume and makeup and, you know, as some, something that was unattainable. Um, you know, I, I think that was, that's kind of the culmination of a process that began back in the sixties, the you know, during the time when, you know, they had the really super big rock stars, but, you know, it, it was, um, you know, that was kind of my generation when I was growing up. And although we certainly looked up to Led Zeppelin and people like that and think, oh, my gosh, they're, they're so amazing. But they and other bands of that time, they, um, well, maybe they're not a good example, but quite a few bands just kind of wore normal or at least semi-normal clothes on stage they didn't it wasn't like the early 60s or the 50s where like bands had outfits or matching you know even the beatles in their early days all had matching suits and stuff and um starting in the in the in the late 60s and from then on i mean people felt free to wear whatever they want and really be more expressive of themselves and i think down through through the years it's it's become a little bit considered almost a little bit tacky for a, a rock band to put on airs like there's something special. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, performers in other types of music can still still do that, and it's, especially as I mentioned, like Lady Gaga or Madonna, people would probably be disappointed if they didn't put on like this big production and you know come sweeping into the arena like you know like the Queen. Um, but most rock stars, if they tried that nowadays, would would kind of be laughed at, I think, or felt sorry for. Mm-hmm. And I think there's a. But go ahead. I just, you know, I mean, this is kind of a almost becoming a tiresome cliche, but um, I honestly do feel like rock itself is nearing the end of its life cycle, like like jazz did before. Mm-hmm. Like when, like when my parents were young you know, jazz and swing music was like the, the cutting edge stuff. Uh, that's what all the, the wild and crazy kids went out and danced to and got in trouble to and, uh, you know, expressed their, their radical feelings to. And, but by the 1950s, when rock and roll came in, then jazz became more sort of just this, you know, it was kind of, it's still, it still existed, but it was more like historical music. It was like, you know, people 
you know, scrat- tugging on their beards and looking through their spectacles, like sat in chairs and talked about, looked at it and talked about it really seriously, like as if it was an art form, mm-hmm. as, as opposed to a spontaneous upwelling of youthful vitality and creativity. Um, you know, and, and this is kind of where I see rock music going and guitar based rock music. It's not like it's going to disappear. In fact, I just saw a great band the other, I have to say the first time in a while I saw a a rock band that was just like really inspiring and made me just like, just ecstatic almost. I mean, most rock and roll bands I see today are just, they're going through motions, the, you know, performing routines. And and these guys, in fact, uh, I'll mention their name. They're called Vacation from, from Ohio. And they just had a power that I had not seen in a while. But for, for the most part, it's not, it's not the method of choice that most young people take uh, to express themselves these days. Mm-hmm. And I, I know a lot of my friends, especially my, I, I, I won't say my young friends, my mid-period friends, like 20s and 30s, who are really committed to rock and roll music, mm-hmm. rock music, they, they get, really mightily annoyed with me because that's their life and i'm saying you know well i'll put it this way a couple years ago i might i have a a nephew who's 21 now but back when he was around 10 or 12 he got into the band slipknot which i was uh, appalled by Uh (laughs) Um, but you know it it you know obviously he was a little kid and it he it was a lot of yelling and it made the adults nervous so yeah. he thought it was great and then when he got a little bit older he uh he really got into green day and all of those east bay bands and i i took him to some shows and introduced him to the band and it, it was kind of a big deal at his middle school for a while that he had pictures of himself with some some big uh punk rock and rock stars and but by the time he was 16 or so he was kind of over all of that and he was like doing electronic dance music and going into all night raves and stuff like that. And by the time he was 19 or 20, he was DJing himself. And I remember seeing him about a year or two ago and saying, you know, not to be controversial or nothing, but don't, I get the impression you, uh, you and your friends are basically like rock music is old people's music. Is that true? And he says, well, um, yeah, And this is a this is a bright kid. I mm-hmm. mean, um, he's not. I'm not saying he's the voice of a generation, but I would, I would venture to say that he he and his friends probably represent a much larger slice of of that people that age than say punk rock or rock fans. Mm-hmm. Well, I see. Like uh, I've I've um, one of the one of the guys that runs the network uh, that the show's on Jabberjaw Media. Um, recommended a documentary to me called uh, I'll Sleep When I'm Dead uh, about Steve Aoki, the super uh-huh. famous DJ. And I watched it, and I wasn't a fan of, of uh, the stuff that he was doing already. And I had no idea where he came from, what he came up through, who his parents were, um, you know, where he, he started Dim Mock Records, had a bunch of awesome bands on there. Um, you know, during the college years and then started to kind of get into DJing these shows and then became the biggest, you know, DJ in the world. Um, 
you know, and, and that was kind of a cool progression to watch, but also interesting, um, you know, and at this point, I think making so much money, um, you know, he'll probably continue doing that. But the fact that he came up kind of the same route, he kind of came through the the punk rock phase into like the the heavier music, then into, hey, let's start DJing and then into the whole EDM thing. Um, and, uh, him and him and Mike, my buddy were college roommates and he was, he was talking about how just the nicest guy in the world and, and, but just, you know, very creative, very, uh, driven and his progression went kind of the same way where he's, you know, now he's doing the whole EDM thing and then working with other artists, remixing uh, the whole, the whole remix thing is, is new to me too, where everyone's got a remix of, you know, uh, you know, Blink-182 has a remix of all these songs or a whole record remixed basically just takes it and splits it up and and adds different things um you know seems almost like a last ditch effort to hold on to some of that where well well we can blend it together this much and then people you know will really enjoy it um you know i'm not sure if you see that same thing but um well it's interesting because i have um i i used to like kind of get these sort of i don't know if i'd call them visions but i would just imagine the future about what might what might happen a few years down the road and uh sometimes i'd be uh, you know i'd be an idiot they would be it turn out to be idiotic but a, a fair number of times they would have they would have some substance to them and one of the things um was that when i was towards the end of my period with lookout records, I was like advising the younger people that were going to carry on after me. I said, you know, in the future, you're probably not going to make as much money from music. So you really ought to start doing, uh, putting more in a uh, focus on things like merchandise, like putting, you know, t-shirts and hats and all the associated things. Uh, I'm, I'm not saying whether it was a good thing or a bad thing. I'm just saying, I think that's kind of what's going to happen. Another another uh, sort of presentiment of the future that I had was back in the early 90s when we were still having arguments about CDs as to whether they were punk or not and whether like Maximum Rock and Roll wouldn't review CDs because they weren't supposedly weren't punk and mm-hmm. a lot of indie labels didn't know whether to make them or not because they cost more than records back then. And, um, and I said, you know, I think not only is the CD thing going to keep growing, but eventually music is going to be like on a microchip or something. I had no idea. Like I'm not a technologically minded person, but I, I just had this feeling. And in fact, I even wrote it into our agreements with our bands that, you know, we'll, we'll always keep the music available in whatever format mm-hmm. should, should exist. And, and I noticed not just me, but other other record companies too started putting into their contracts at that time um, uh, all all rights to this music for the world and the universe. You know, preparing for, for the days that music would <laughs> would be uh, distributed in outer space, I guess. And, uh-huh. and and of course, music has gone into outer space now. One of the couple of the probes that have actually left the solar system, they. Uh, embedded a, lot, a bunch of music in them so that if aliens ever find them, they could hear what we listen to on Earth. <laughs> so, uh, uh, but one of the other uh, presentiments I had at that time was when, when multi-track recording started to become really 
big is I, I said, I bet in the future you'll be able to buy a record or a tape or a microchip or whatever it is where you get all of the separate tracks the same way that a recording engineer would have them and then you get to mix it however you would like it. Yeah, the stems, yeah. And and then, uh, or, or for that matter, you could add your own, you know, you could add your own guitar or singing into it. You could just make, make you know, make it your own personal one-of-a-kind art form. And so the uh, the band or the singer who originally put out the record is just providing you with the, the raw materials. Mm-hmm. And that kind, kind of went hand-in-hand with this notion I don't know if if I thought of this right about the time the internet came out, but I thought in the future, everybody's going to be their own radio station and their own TV station and their own newspaper, um, which I guess is kind of what's happening. I, I If I had been smarter, I suppose I could have gotten on the ground floor of some of the social media and stuff and, and been a multi-zillionaire, but it's kind of like I sensed that, 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 that each person becomes... Some, on autonomous cultural phenomenon. Yeah. But, you know, I'm not as strong as they used to be. Don't have as much energy to, to ride the cutting edge. But these are some of the kind of things that I saw coming. And I don't know. I mean, you're probably more up on it than I am these days. But is, is that, when you mention remixes, is that something that's becoming possible that, say, any any person could just sort of get hold of the originals of a, of a, of a recording and then totally remix it their way. Yeah. That's, it's funny that you mentioned that because, uh, I thought you were going down that path because you're, I mean, your, your experience in life is far beyond what a lot of people have experienced. So I would say your visions are, are an educated guess, you know, easily. And so I think this actually happened. I think nine inch nails actually did this where they released their record where you could make it your own. You can make your own mixes. You could submit them back to the band. You could keep them. Um, it, I think they call it the stems. And I, I had a guest. Uh, there's a band called the Fall of Troy. Um, I had a couple of those guys on, buddies of mine. And they were talking. They released their new album. It's called OK. And they released it um, with three different mixes. They had three different producers mix it and released it for pay what you want on their website. Um, and then at the end, they released what they called the stems, which is all the tracks. So you can go through mix, remix, do whatever you want with them. You know, you could just cut them all out and just listen to the drums, you know, if that's what you wanted to do. And it was kind of like they're, they, what they were trying to do is put every bit of themselves that they possibly could out to their fans and just say, here we are, 100%. It's free. It's $100, whatever you want to pay. But here we are. Like no, no... uh posturing nothing just just uh like a full release um and it was kind of impressive because uh you know i know i, I believe the nine inch nails thing happened i don't remember which record it was but when the fall of troy did it um that was their whole idea is you guys have given us everything that we have we're going to give you everything that we have and it was kind of cool it had it had some good uh some good uh karma around it but um i'm not sure how much exactly is is done with the remixes that I mean everyone's got their remixes, but I think they actually get those from the artist and say, Hey, can you remix this track? versus here's everything for, you know, you can you can find it. Um but yeah, it has well, I had the I had the opportunity to sort of 
be not just an observer, but a participant in sort of the evolution of recording technology. Um, and I know when we first started making records, uh, we like the first format we worked in was, was, uh, we, you know, for money, for financial reasons, we could only afford like a very small studio that had eight tracks, uh, eight tracks of recording. So that's, that's, fairly limiting, you know, yeah, because especially half of them are going to be drums. And, um, and I remember in the, being in the studio at that time and talking to the engineer who'd been around a while and, and, and he's saying, well, you think this is limiting, uh, you know, back in the fifties, they had one or two tracks and, and, and he helped me realize, you know, how the available technology changes there was a way in which people create art in, in in a very real sense that he said, like back in the fifties, like the, the thing that really mattered if you wanted to be a successful musician was that you could play the whole song all the way through perfectly without making a single mistake over and over and over again until they got it. Everything was right. Mm-hmm. Because and by the time, by the time we were working in the studio in the eighties, you know, you could, you could fix things like the the artist would, you know, have a perfect take of a, of a song, but he screwed up one word of the of the vocals. Well, they could go back and uh, it's called punching it in, and out. you know they would like mm-hmm. punch erase and record over it again. Yep. And and at times they would like cut uh, cut the tape and splice it together. Uh, it was it was a form of art that only only good engineers could get away with because if you didn't do it right, you could ruin the whole the whole song but already it wasn't as important to to play the whole song perfectly it be was beginning to become possible to um say well it's almost good enough and then we'll fix it uh you know in in the mix or in the in the editing and you know over the, the subsequent couple, next 10 20 years we watched it go from we graduated to 16 tracks and then 24 tracks and then with computers, basically infinite tracks. Yeah. And, and, and it became, uh, you know, completely irrelevant if you could play a song all the way through. Mm-hmm. I mean, you could, uh, I mean, I literally, well, I won't name any names, but I literally watched some records that are pretty famous get made where the singer could not, you know, sing more than two or three words in a row without making a mistake. But it didn't matter because he would, he would just, yeah, you know, they would just go through it little piece by piece all the way through. Mm-hmm. And um, I mean, the hardest part was the uh, in the earlier days was the drums. You you had to get at least that part perfect because that was really difficult to to patch and splice and overdub. But with computers, you could even do that. Um, and of course, with the you know pitch correction, you know nobody even has to sing in tune anymore. So it's a it's it's a it's a whole different you know what what is in demand for a successful artist is you know quite different. You know technical perfection is you know almost an, an afterthought. What what's required now is that somebody can muster up the passion and intensity, even if it's only for a few seconds, because you know you can just splice together a, a whole bunch of few seconds and, and have a have a great song where as a 50s rock and roller he had to be just able to just bang 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 you know without even 
and if you look at you know you look at uh films of some of the of the early 50s rock and rollers i mean it, it looks like they're just doing it like easiest thing in the world just like not hardly even paint, you know as if they're uh, just shucking corn or something but you know, I, I, I expect that that's probably a state of almost meditative concentration, which was required. You know, it's, it's, it's hard to, to do something almost perfectly, or at least it looks close enough to perfect that nobody else can tell <laughs> that, that it's not. Sure. And, um, you know, I don't, I don't know if there's, if there's a lot of musicians around these days that could do that, but that's one of the, uh, one of the ways that, uh, you know, changing times, well, you know, computers is, is another one. You know, when I when I first started writing, um, I did it by hand or on a typewriter. Mm-hmm. And I, I don't know if you've ever, uh, if, if you've ever tried to edit or correct the manuscript um, in the old fashioned way, like I would, I would type and uh, on a, on a, manual typewriter with a piece of carbon paper so I'd have a, a copy of whatever I was writing and if I hit hit a wrong key and put the wrong letter I'd have to erase that and then go underneath the carbon paper and erase the other copy and say you know a lot of work and very time consuming and many times if you made too big of a mistake you'd have to throw the whole page out and start over mm-hmm. again um and sim- similarly to the days when you hand wrote or in the middle ages when before printing where you you wrote and drew everything by hand you you're obviously when it takes so long and it's so much work if you make a mistake you're going to write a lot differently than if you could instantly change everything with a, a stroke of a key on the computer mm-hmm. and this was something, you know, I, my, I got my first computer in 87, right around about the middle of the time when I was publishing my Look At magazine. And they were still pretty primitive and not very easy to, to use, but as they became easier and easier, there was a tendency, on I think on my part and people's part in general, just to like write, you know, spew out, you know, you can type a lot faster on computers anyway than you can on a typewriter, but spew out thousands of words and fix it in the mix as as you might say in the recording studio mm-hmm. you can just take a whole block of text and move it somewhere else or say oh i don't like that whole page make it disappear oh i do like it after make it come back so you you, you know the whole way your brain operates in terms of creating things has been affected by by evolving technology I absolutely agree. That's isn't it weird now that with like I was talking about earlier with the the transparency to you know having all this access to people and what they do, it's it's kind of a weird thing to me to think about that there's so much you can't get away with anything anymore. It seems like there's someone caught it on camera or someone finds out somehow, but it's easier than ever to fake people out sonically in a studio, well, you know, it's just kind of a weird thing that anybody in their mom's basement could make themselves sound like anybody. Yeah. But, that, I, that's, I, I'm constantly amazed these days by, well, I, a few, about three, four years ago, I did a, um, my, a 
record, a compilation like Billy Joe from Green Day asked me to put together a compilation of my favorite contemporary bands. Um, and so I just basically called up or emailed people around the country that I knew and were in bands that I thought deserved to be on it. And, you know, I basically put together the whole record without leaving my, my room. Uh-huh. Um, and it was all done over the computer. They, they emailed me back, um, uh, songs, many of which were recorded in their home studios or homes. And I was just, they, they all sounded like really pro and the kind of sound that back in the eighties, we could not have afforded basically. Like we had that, that eight track studio and, uh, you know, we, we did what we could, but you know, it was going to sound kind of thin and stuff. And these, basically a lot of these bands were almost brand new and they had access with thanks to computers and all that to a sound, a quality of sound that, uh, I, I could not have even imagined putting out in our early lookout days. I mean, uh, they all sounded professional, but I would, I would maybe question your idea that, you know, that with the modern technology, you can get away with everything. I, I, you know, and I'm not just talking about recording, but you think in, in, in political or cultural life in general, uh, in a sense, you can't, you you say you can't get away with everything, but in a way you can also get away with everything. And, and you find that there's such a surfeit of, uh, information and ideas and culture that it all kind of sort of begins to wash over. I mean, some, I, I'm thinking particularly in politics, like somebody can come on television or on the internet and, and say flamboyant, fantastical lies and and it uh, these are things that for most of my life would have destroyed somebody's career almost instantly if they got caught mm-hmm. in a lie and you know in in a, in a major political sense for example and and yet today you have you you know political campaigns are basically nothing but lies and a little truth scattered in here and there and people increasingly be, seem to be becoming either incapable of telling the difference or not caring. Yeah. It, it's kind of just like it's, oh, it's all just data. It's all just information washing over me and whatever. If, if, it's, if, it's, if it's funny or catchy or interesting, I'll pay attention to it. And if not, well, whatever. He's just, he's just, he's just talking or tweeting. Yeah, that's a good point. And I mean, I, I agree with you there, too. And that that's a, a different perspective on it. And, um, you know, I guess, too, what I'm thinking is, it's almost apathy due to the overabundance of of the exposure where we've been hit with, you know, so and so says something. And this person proves that it was wrong, or, or uh, maybe it wasn't supposed to be heard, but this network put it out. So I'm not going to listen to it kind of thing almost it's almost gone in a full circle again to where you can, that's a good point. You can get away with everything because there's so much out there and it's hitting so many things that you just tend to just wash over it or, Oh yeah, that's well, he's going to get away with that. Or he's going to, you know, he's going to say what he's going to say or, you know, I can't help thinking that to when I was a kid or even a young man, I've just, for instance, getting 
in the newspaper, getting your name or a picture or something you said into the newspaper was a pretty big deal. Oh, yeah. All the, na- all the neighbors would come around and say, oh, I saw you in the newspaper. <laughs> you must be pretty important these days. And, uh, uh, and you know, gradually, well, I think, you know, I learned this from my, in the early 80s, I began publishing my own magazine, thanks to computer and Xerox technology that made that possible. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I, I mentioned earlier the kind of the, the carbon paper thing. I, I contrast this was in the 1950s. I, when I was in elementary school, I tried to make my own satirical newspaper at school, which was a big hit until it got shut down by the teacher. But um, <laughs> I had, I literally had to do that on a typewriter with carbon paper and I could only produce three copies because of that. And I had to pass them around. All the kids had to pass them around I, to, to read. There was no way to, there was no Xerox of course or anything. Mm-hmm. And, um, so by the eighties, it was pretty easy to, if you didn't like the newspaper, in fact, there was a, a hippie, uh, broadcaster, in San Francisco, who used to always sign off on the, the the evening news, and and that was that's the news for today. If you didn't like the news, go out and make some of your own. <laughs> and it and it became you know if you didn't like the newspaper, go out and make a newspaper of your own. Yep. Um, and um, now now it's got to where uh, uh, it's just well, I I refer to this in in my book actually because I, I had a kind of a rough adjustment period to it when I was publishing my magazine back in the eighties and early nineties. I would regularly get into these like kind of spats where I would say something controversial and then people would write a letter back to me saying, "You know, you're totally wrong about that," and here's rah, 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 and and then the next issue I would publish their letter and my answer to it. And then if they were really annoyed, they would send a letter back to the next issue. But all this took months and very few people could sustain a grudge for that, that long. Uh, but nowadays, of course, on, on Twitter or the, or the Facebook or a similar media, basically the minute, the insta second somebody says something you think is wrong or obnoxious, you can like hit them back with like, 10 arguments or insults or uh, threats and and so can thousands or millions of other people mm-hmm. it's, it's almost instantaneous to um, a very a very different form and uh, you know at, at first I I took to that being a sort of an argumentative sort myself in in more recent years I've come to to believe what I eventually found with my magazine too that I use when I started out my magazine. I used to think if you get people up in arms and annoyed and outraged, you know, running down the street with torches, uh, <laughs> um, that you were helping promote political or cultural discussion, that you were helping to broaden people's understanding. And I came to to see that actually most of the time you're just making them angry, and when people are angry, they don't think very well. Mm-hmm. And this kind of, you know, has become exponentially more true with with the internet where you can instantly become outraged at somebody that said something two seconds ago. And so now you have uh, large numbers of people living in a pretty much constant state of outrage. And I, I think it's something to, to guard against, not only in ourselves, but in 
in others. It, uh, so I've, I've kind of tried to dial back quite a bit on putting forth really strong uh, or strident opinions because if I just make everybody mad, you know, they're not thinking of constructive solutions. Uh, they're, they're just thinking about how they can either humiliate or kill me. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And, and I definitely see that. That's, that's a good way to be. I mean, that's a good way to, to look at it too. I mean, it goes all the way back to, to Gilman. I mean, fostering, you know, safe spaces or free spaces, um, you know, thinking about the implications of your, you know, of your words and your actions is just, I mean, it's step one to do a, a peaceful environment. And, and that's, uh, very admirable. And I, I wanted to touch back on, <clears throat> you were mentioning when you, you were, uh, at Gilman watching the, the show with, with Billy Joe and, and, uh, his, his boys in a band, correct? That I, I remember seeing a video of Billy in the pit, uh, at his son's show on the internet that someone had posted, but I wanted to know if you saw the same passion and, and fire in them that you saw in Billy and, and like the Op Ivy guys back in the day, that same magic, if you saw that, um, seeing them on stage and, and, you know, was it the same or was it a little different? Well, well, if, uh, one of my favorite sayings is history doesn't repeat, but it rhymes. Um, and w- one of the the areas where people, uh, especially older people or people my age often fall down on, uh, on their analysis is where they say, well, back in my day, we had this kind of rebellion or this kind of music and these kids nowadays don't understand that but look mm-hmm. at them they, they're doing something totally different um and uh, i'm like yeah and when we were kids we were not you know doing covers of the glenn miller or glenn miller orchestra or cole porter either <laughs> that mm-hmm. was like our parents so no we were doing something new um but what we did share in common was the excitement and the passion and so, yeah, the kids, the kids bands of today are not going to sound or look exactly like the ones of, of 30 years ago. Mm-hmm. Although, although to be fair, there are many bands who try desperately to look exactly like the bands of 30 years ago. And <laughs> that's true. And, and some of them are fairly good at it. It's just that, you know, they're, they're, it's like one of those uh, historical reenactment you know, or Renaissance fair kind of things. There's, you know, it's, it's interesting for people who like that kind of stuff, but it's not cutting edge culture. So in, in more specific answer to your question, well, first I want to specify Billy has two sons and both of them are in bands, but in two separate bands. Okay. Um, okay. One, one of them is called the swimmers originally Emily's army and they're, they're doing like big stuff. That's Billy's older son. Um, Joey is in that band. And the other one is, is, son who I think has just turned 18 called Jacob Danger and he just performs as a, with a band but as an individual performer um, now the particular event I was talking about was a, a, a little festival that um, the, the bands themselves all of whom were pretty much like 21 years old or younger and mostly younger they had organized the whole thing, booked all the bands, basically just said, hey, Gilman, can we have a night where we can just have all our friends' bands? And, um, it was an amazing uh, event. It was packed out. It was one of the first times in a, long, a while that almost everybody at Gilman was genuinely kids as opposed to a mix, mixture of generations. Mm-hmm. And uh, Billy and I were watching from the sound booth, and and Billy said right in the middle of the show, 
you know, this is like uh, total next generation stuff. You know, for for a long time, kids have been sort of following in the footsteps of what we did, but now now these kids are using the what what we created as a as a as a platform, but they're doing totally their own thing. Um, there is this, they, you know, they not, they don't need any adults showing them what to do or how to do it. Mm-hmm. They're just doing it themselves. And he, and I thought his observation was very, very germane because that was exactly what was happening. Um, I, I thought the music was really, really good. And at least a couple of the bands were more than good and great, but it was not, it didn't sound like, Gilman in the 80s or 90s it sounded like kids having bands today in the in the 2000s mm-hmm. um and um and it wasn't you know I didn't need to be part of it because I'm you know it's not it's their thing not mine I mm-hmm. I can appreciate it and I can you know and I I knew some of the kids involved and I can congratulate them and and once in a while they'll ask me questions about you know, how did you do this or how did this compare to that? And and I'm happy to answer, but you know, they don't need me. They don't need Billy either. And he, and he gracefully recognizes that. He said, you know, we, we built something and they're moving on to the, to the next phase. And that's how it should be, you know? And, uh, I think for, for quite a while, I mean, my, my generation, the baby boom generation has, um, I, I think justly, been criticized for dominating everything for so long and it's not all their fault it's partly a factor of after the you know all the the baby boom was so massive that there was like this bubble of uh ever since the 50s where people my age outnumbered every other demographic by far Mm -hmm. it was the largest population bubble probably in history at least that we know about and you know, some people have likened it to where uh, when a snake swallows a very big animal, and then you can see the, the this big bubble going all the way through the snake mm-hmm. <laughs> as it gets processed. <laughs> and that's kind of that's you know, in one sense, I, I remember in the heady periods of the '60s, where when we were all you know very young and very full of idealism, we we thought we were going to totally remake the world and everything seemed to be about us because there were so many of us and it, and the country was prosperous and every, you know, the parents having fought a big war, they kind of indulged us. Everybody's, Oh, just what do you kids think? And how do you want to? So, you know, and we did create some valuable culture, I think, um, and some stupid culture too, but, but basically we, we got in the habit of, being so of everybody taking us seriously, especially since most of the people doing the writing and commenting about it were also part of our generation. Mm-hmm. And so it's a, it's a, a little bit difficult for it. it I, that, that's true of every generation. Of course, they like, Oh, kids these days, they don't know what it's really good stuff is like, but uh, you know, it's like whenever I pe- meet people my age, it's, it's, it's a common annoyance actually like i recently went to my high school reunion and to hear to hear people my age moaning about kids these days and all it's just <laughs> yeah you know whatever you know you haven't listened to a new record in 40 years um, yeah. 
so even even my 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 little brother my little brother who's sixty something but uh, <laughs> I, I I remember a few years ago him him saying oh yeah like the good the good music is still happening I, I met I met these kids and they they all have long hair and and play like uh, Neil Young and Grateful Dead type stuff and I'm like yeah but that's not that's not about being a kid that's being like worshiping history yeah it's not moving the dial but but at all. but. but yeah, I mean, I, I love my brother, but to to him, at least at that time, was you know the same iconography of like the long hair and and all and all of that kind of costume and stuff. That was what still meant rebellion. Whereas to people from the next generation, you know, short hair and leather jackets meant rebellion and mm-hmm. and so on and so on. Absolutely, absolutely, and. I mean, I would, I would love to, to be able to sit down with a lot of these people from that day and, and talk about, you know, I've, I've reached out to like Jesse Michaels and, and stuff. And he wrote me back and said that he doesn't do many interviews anymore about that time. And I understand that. And, um, you know, like Billy Joe, you know, chatting with him on the show would be awesome, but you know, I just don't know if that would happen, but you know, for people having such an influence on my life and, and, uh, you know, being able to, with this show, uh, also being able to put it out there and, and all these stories being out there for, for, you know, kids to hear now or, or adults to hear now, um, maybe we'll take them back in time or maybe give them some perspective on their future. Um, and, and that's why I was really excited that you wanted to come on and, and chat and, and the book is fantastic. Um, and I, I, I read in the beginning, the forward or whatnot that, uh, you know, a lot of things got left out, not purposefully, but because that there or not because of who people were or whatnot, but because there just wasn't enough room. Do you plan on on making like a footnote to this book or <clears throat> adding into some of these stories somewhere else? Well, not specifically. I mean, as far as I'm concerned, the my story of the of the record label is is pretty much done. I don't know if you ran across my first book, which came out a couple of years earlier, uh, Spy Rock? called Spy, Spy Rock Memories. Cause mm-hmm. that, that it, there's a lot of overlap with between that and the, how to, to run or ruin a, a record label book. Um, you know, in both of them, I, I do a little bit of talking about how the label started and what some of the roots were. And, you know, for instance, in the Spy Rock Memories, I talk about meeting Operation Ivy for the first time and, meeting Trey, who was my neighbor up in the mountains and mm-hmm. how our band started and how the label started. So it's, it's not, although spy rock is mostly about like a, a big city slicker trying to go out and live in the wilderness and having no idea what he's doing. Um, and the, the, the book about lookout is more about, a somebody trying to start a record label and run a record label when he has no idea what he's doing. Mm-hmm. Uh, so they, there's overlap and they're the, my third book is basically a memoir of the time after I look out. Well, not it when it, it overlaps too. It's basically a memoir of the time I spent in England, which started back in the seventies and proceeded all the way up into this century. Mm-hmm. Um, but there's lots of, music stuff in there um there will be some stuff in there about how it interacted with lookout and with some of the english bands that i worked with uh and and with many other music things that happened in england that aren't lookout related but you know just 
generally rock and roll or pop culture related. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think there'll be some more things to be said about music in general and Lookout in particular, but, um, no, it's, it's, uh, it's, you know, I, I, as I tried to stress in both of the books, it's, it's, it's not the story of Lookout or of Spyrock. It's, it's my story mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. How, how I evolved and, and grew and changed as a, as a person in response to some of the strange circumstances I found myself in. And that that that'll be the case of the uh, the third book, and and the one after that is actually meant to be a novel, which will in fact, you know, in a fictional way cover you know maybe some of the more scandalous stuff will be there because it will, uh, it's 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 entirely fictional and there's, um, but it it is set in the punk rock scene and. I'll be able to sort of address some kind of situ- some kinds of situations and events that I wouldn't want to put in a nonfiction memoir because you got to be really careful. I mean, it's not it's not so much, um, you know, like my editor helped me a lot in saying, "Do you really want to say this about such and such a person?" You mm-hmm. know, um, even though you're pretty sure it's true, even though you're absolutely sure it's true. Um, because there's there's ways you can interpret it. You don't know why he or she said that or did that. You know, you might be thinking they did it because they're a terrible person or they wanted to hurt you. In in real life, they might have been doing it because they were frightened that they wouldn't get their due or they were had a bad day at the office or at home. And you know, it's it's. When you get into when you get into a working in fiction, you can have your characters basically do whatever seems good for the story, as opposed to in nonfiction. You have to really show some 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 balance. I mean, not not every nonfiction writer does that. Some just and I, I suspect if I had written that book ten years earlier, I probably would have written a lot of things I would have regretted. I would have probably called a bunch of people names and said, oh, they were this person did blah, blah, blah. And mm-hmm. by the time I did write it, I was able to, to think, I think take what a, was a pretty even handed approach to say, well, I wish this person hadn't done that. And I'm sorry they did. But at the same time, maybe they had their reasons. And anyway, this is how it worked out. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that makes for a better book. Sure, absolutely. And so this book, this uh, this next book, you're working on it now, right? That's the it's not coming in, out soon. In, but... the, in, in theory, I'm uh, I'm really kind of disappointed in myself because I'm I really it should have been done by now, and I'm basically still at the very beginning of it. This, this past year has been a time of of both upheaval and uh, a lot of travel for me. Um, in fact, I've I've lost my my home in in uh, Brooklyn. And I've been basically on the road most of the time for quite a few months now. And I thought that that would be a good opportunity to do lots of writing because a lot of my writing has been done on planes and trains and so Mm -hmm. on. But uh, for some reason, well, I don't need to say for some reason, because lack of focus and lack of uh, concentration and energy, I, I haven't gotten far yet. And I keep holding on to the faith that any day now I'm going to just like crank out like, you know, 
50,000 or a hundred thousand words. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, my, 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 my first, my first book took almost four years to write. My second took about two years. Well, when I say write and edit, mm-hmm. uh, my second, so I was hoping this one would take one year, but the one year is already up. So yeah. if I don't, if I don't do it all in the next few weeks, um, I'm going to be way behind schedule. Yeah. <laughs> and you're heading back to Asia, right? I'm hope, hoping and planning to to get uh, back to, to China and to other mm-hmm. parts of Asia ASAP, but that probably won't be till later in the year. Okay. Um, I'm, I'm busily studying my Chinese every day. In fact, that's what I was doing right before you called. Um, I have a, a phone app and a computer app that lets, lets me practice and learn Chinese for about an hour to two every day. Okay. And just to, and for rest and relaxation, rest and relaxation, I'm doing a couple of European languages as well. It's, it, it keeps the mind active and helps you develop a sense of perspective. Absolutely. This, this, this is just a side note, but I think it's a, a very useful one. I've never, I've never become really fluent in another language. I, I have like sort of a passing acquaintance with several. I mean, mm-hmm. I can, I can basically like read French and Italian and Spanish newspapers now and write simple letters and things like that. But I certainly couldn't, you know, get in a really lively conversation with people from any, from any of those countries. Mm-hmm. But when I, when I first started to get a grasp on, on French, which was quite a few years ago, um, what I discovered was, you know, a lot of a lot of Americans, myself included, struggle with getting the right pronunciation and inflection. And I discovered that the, the secret for me was to to toward, sort of change the way that I held my body and my head when I was trying to speak. And I I, I sort of picked out the cartoon stereotype of a Frenchman who's kind of got his nose up in the air and going, ho, 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 ho. <laughs> You know, and uh-huh. it, it's exaggerated, obviously greatly exaggerated. I, mean, I know many wonderful French people, and they're certainly not snooty or arrogant or any of that. But there is a certain Frenchness that that there's a reason they put it in the cartoons because uh-huh. there is something to it. And when you do that, if you do that ho 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 thing, it the pronunciation starts to make sense, uh-huh. and it it just comes naturally. And something else happens is that your consciousness goes into a different place. You're no longer a full-fledged American. You're suddenly starting to to think in a different culture, in a different language, in a different environment, you know, very very slightly, but it, it develops. Uh-huh. And this is true of any language, all the more so when you get to a, a very, very different language like Chinese, which has completely, you know, a whole different culture and philosophy mm-hmm. behind it. And, and um, and it was at that point that I realized that the value of learning another language is not just so you can go to some country and talk to the natives, although that's wonderful, but being able to see yourself from a different perspective. And that, in, my, in, in 1970, uh, there was a, a book called The Whole Earth Catalog where they published on the cover a picture of the planet Earth from taken from space. Mm-hmm. Up until all, all my all my early life, we had always been taught in school, of course, that the world is is round. Um, 
But it didn't really make sense until they put satellites out in space and took pictures of it. And then we said, oh, by looking at it from a whole different place, Mm -hmm. now we can see it. Now it becomes real. And similarly, by stepping out of our English, American culture and mindset and putting ourselves ever so slightly into another one, then suddenly we're we're seeing how how we see. Is that not too cute? Here we're seeing how we think, how the interplay between language and thought. And so, you know, the more I learn about about other languages, the more I come to understand and love my own. Mm-hmm. So that's that's I guess why it's important. That's a fascinating take on it, and and uh, you know, hilarious at the same time. Putting your nose in the air, and and uh, you know, I see a lot of that with probably a lot of these these uh, actors that that you know, for this month before the shoot, I only refer to me as this, and they get into that character. It's uh, oh yeah, really cool. Yeah, it's like yeah, I feel like actors like you just have to pretend to be somebody else, but it, you know it. it if you can learn how to at least in some way be somebody else, mm-hmm. you don't even you don't even have to pretend. And it and it and it it becomes it becomes real. Um, I, I don't know if this is if, uh, related, but on the subject of perspective, um, I became fascinated with this uh, noticing. Like I, from time to time, hang around museums. I've kind of been a, a a hallmark of my life ever since I was a kid in Detroit. Back then, all the museums, the art museums were free and it provided a window into another world where mm-hmm. like my, we were, we were fairly poor uh, where I grew up and, you know, factory workers and environment kind of thing. And, but every Sunday, my dad would take us to the Detroit art museum, which is quite a good museum. And we could just wander around and see, all of these other possibilities. And so I it formed a lifelong habit with me. And one thing that I started noticing was that up until about the 14, 1500s, all of the paintings were just kind of flat, almost like they'd painted or by somebody who didn't really know how to draw. Cause you, you know, there was no sense of perspective. You couldn't, there was no, everything was in the same place. Mm-hmm. You know, you didn't, it wasn't something off in the distance. And then suddenly around that 1400s, 1500s, suddenly they figured out how to make things look, you know, uh, related, interrelated in terms of distance, where you could make the mountains look like they're off far away and the and the house look close. And, and I don't know, uh, I've never been able to quite figure this out, but it happened right about the same time that the printing press was invented and this was one of those major events in human history that's not unlike what the internet is doing to us now it's changing the whole way that we communicate and and how we see you know up until up until the 1400s when the printing press came about anything that was any book or newspaper or anything had to be all handwritten and illustrated yep took took forever and so it was precious. And suddenly, you know, you could crank out thousands of, I mean, as somebody in the year 1523 wrote to his friend, he says, 
I remember when like being on a piece of paper was like, you know, a message on a piece of paper was like precious and like you would guard it for your life. And now in only a few years since the printing press, it's become so common that like I see them, people just like throw things on the ground, you know, like mm-hmm. advertisements and stuff. Uh, you know, we're talking 500 years ago now. And, um, and that seems to have been a change of perspective in the way that the human race saw itself and the way it thinks, you know, very similar to what has happened today in the internet. And, and it's, it's a weird coincidence that somehow painting and art and everything changed along mm-hmm. with it. Why? I don't, I don't know. Maybe before I die, I'll figure that, that out. Um, but, you know, similarly, all forms of art seems to be changing today, too. You know, for instance, when you can use a computer to create almost any kind of, of art, the the uh, discipline of, like, painting a picture or hand-lettering a, a letter, um, you know, people are like, you know, why bother? Mm-hmm. But there's other ways that I can, like, expand my artistic reach out into the universe anyway well absolutely and the the that was the around the time of the enlightenment i believe when when the printing press came out and they were able to print the bible and everything else and you think about what we were talking about earlier how everything you did was you know thoughtful and and meant something because it was so hard to do as far as you know uh handwriting and and everything else just imagine all of that really dense, meaningful product instantaneously, pretty much. Now everyone can read it. For a period of time there, it had to be just an explosion of really valuable uh, words and ideas until it became, you know, run of the mill where anyone could just write whatever they want and put it out. That big chunk of time right there, right after that happened was basically like shoving some of the most amazing thoughts and ideas out to everyone around the world. It's pretty, um, pretty you, big deal. I would think you, you might call it the democratization of, of knowledge. Um, yeah. because suddenly millions more people could become philosophers and writers and thinkers than could have before. I think, uh, probably, might be worthwhile to mention that up until the time of the printing press, most people couldn't read and write anyway because mm-hmm. they would have no need to. Most people could never afford a book or a page, you know. Yeah. Uh, and and there was very little social mobility. There was a very tiny class uh, of educated, cultured people who ran everything, and everybody else picked potatoes or whatever the local crop was. There was not a lot of room for just any old person to say, hey, I want to be a poet, or I think I want to be a ballet dancer. It wasn't a very realistic ambition, and suddenly the whole world opened up. And periodically this happens, you know, as it has happened again in in recent times. Like, um, And ironically, of course, you know, illiteracy is at a... Is at a is higher now than it probably has been in in years. I mean, we've got millions and millions of people who can can publish all sorts of uh, heavy duty philosophy and political science on the internet, and millions more who can't or won't ever ever read it. Mm-hmm. Um, 
that, that that's a, a sort of a countervailing trend. And one of the reasons I'm in, I'm fascinated by China is, of course, their culture is extremely ancient, uh, five thousand years or more, and and yet for most of that time, they they didn't go through the same, you know, they were mo- much more advanced than us for much of that time, but they didn't go through the same democratization of knowledge as early as we did, and for up until probably a hundred years ago, or so they still had that system where only about 10 or 15% of the people could read and write. Part of the reason being that the language is, is very difficult. Um, and that was a way of, you know, if you passed the test when you were uh, 15 or so, you became one of the, the mandarins is what they're called. The, the people who, who read and write and run the society. And if you didn't, if you're one of the other 85%, you get to be a peasant it was only in the 20th century, really, that that dramatically changed. And now, of course, in China, people are widely literate and probably more so than here because they, they have to learn English as well as Chinese from elementary school. Mm-hmm. Um, but as a result, their their society evolved in, in different ways. And, um, well, these are things that I, that I think about. Uh, <laughs> so... One, one one reason I don't want to be a dumb American and not know Chinese. <laughs> well, that's fantastic, Larry. And, and uh, you know, I really, really appreciate you coming on the show and, and uh, you know, being willing to talk. And you've got some really great insights. And, you know, of course, my initial reach out was for, you know, love the love the work, love the what you've put out. But you've done so many cool things. It's really, um, I really feel... Uh, lucky to be able to to get some of that insight from you and and my listeners as well uh, will really appreciate uh, your words and and I know I know already appreciate your output um, but I, I just wanted to say thank you for for you know putting your neck on the line and putting that that music out there putting that content out there is really important to a lot of people and and uh, you know as you go on and, and continue writing and and learning you know keep imparting that on us and and uh, really appreciate the time. Well, I appreciate the opportunity to uh, sound off on a, a lot of things I like to sound off on, and uh, I'm sorry if we didn't talk all that much about about music and bands, but I think most people have heard all that stuff. Absolutely. Time. This went exactly so. exactly how I wanted it to go, and I really wanted to just, you know, hear about Larry as a person, and, uh, you know, got some really cool... cool uh, tidbits in there and and I, again i really appreciate your time and and i know it's um, valuable and yeah well i i'm not sure how valuable <laughs> but thank <laughs> you for saying that i now that you mentioned larry as a person i would like to just uh sort of close with with one thing that feels kind of important and means a lot to me absolutely is, uh, please do um i mean I, honestly i feel very honored that anybody takes my ideas and that seriously that they're willing to sit and listen to them for, for an hour or two. Um, but I have to con- compare and contrast with where I came from. Um, and I think I look back on myself 50 years ago or more and I was, you know, the idea of any of this happening today that I would even be alive, let alone knowing the things that I know and having the opportunity of traveled and, 
done what I've done would have been completely unimaginable. I mean, basically, I was set for a track of working in the factories or the steel mills, and plus I was kind of a young thug, so I probably would have very possibly ended up in jail or dead, as happened to a lot of my contemporaries. Um, the the idea that all of this this amazing change has happened is is kind of of mind-boggling that I've had this opportunity, um, but I'm also, I really have to say how grateful I am that, that I've had a million second chances and a million opportunities to, to get an education, to travel, to, to meet all sorts of people that I never would have dreamed of meeting. Um, it's, it's been, it's been pretty astounding and, um, thank you for giving me the chance to, to talk about it. Absolutely, Larry, and and again, thank you from the bottom of my heart, man. I mean, yeah, I mean, changed my whole life and perspective on a lot of things, and and uh, you know, artistically, and and uh, just having something to do that was creative and somewhere to go. Uh, you know, when I was feeling bad or feeling you know angry, or I could throw on you know, or 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 feeling you know uh, anger towards someone else, and I put I put on you know Op Ivy, and everything's fine. You know. That those were my my happy times and my happy place, and it's still to this day I can put on one of those records and immediately transport myself back to being a kid and and uh, you know that point in my life. It's almost it's almost visual, like I can almost just see it in my head where I was sitting, whose whose room I was in, who I was with, whose car I was in. Um, you know that's something I'll always cherish and and a huge deal to me, and and I'm really glad you came from where you came from from the time you did because it really shaped you know all of that and so i can just say i'm grateful to that and and grateful to you so well thank you again for having me it's been a real pleasure and good luck in everything that you do from here on out same to you larry thank you and good luck in your travels and be safe and i'll be looking forward to the next book all right you take care i just got to get busy on writing it all right all right bye-bye now bye-bye All right, guys, that was my conversation with Larry Livermore from Lookout Records, the band The Lookouts, and an author uh, penning such books as Spy Rock Memories, How to Run or Ruin a Record Label, and his book three is in the works now. So definitely appreciate you guys tuning in this week to this episode. Larry is one of my heroes, and I really enjoyed this interview a lot. Gained a lot of insight and uh, was challenged on a few things, which I do enjoy because I have these ideas, and I just put them out there and have no idea where they're going to go, and Larry really was was good at uh reining them in and and uh getting to the bottom of some things which was really cool so uh anyways uh definitely check out larry's books uh in his travels he's over in asia a lot he's over in new york now um and we're really glad to have you another week uh once again we are on purepleasurepodcast.com instagram and twitter uh definitely go and rate the show check out the amazon affiliate link check out the other jabberjaw media shows And definitely check out the other Adobe uh, radio shows as well. We're coming to you every Saturday on Adobe Radio uh, at 6 p.m. Eastern. That's every Saturday. So definitely check it out there. And if you are listening on Adobe Radio, uh, we do only play the first hour of the interview. So we definitely have the full episode up on iTunes right after that. So be sure to download, subscribe, and we'll see you on the radio. Have a good week.
Hey, this is Blasco, host of Manage Mental, part of the Jabberjaw Media Podcast Network. Manage Mental brings you our takes on the modern day music business and how we mentally approach the profession of management. Join Mike Mowry and myself as we cover hot topics in the industry, answer fan questions, provide insight on sales numbers, and showcase new music with a slant toward developing artists. Listen and subscribe at jabberjawmedia.com.